Good morning. Welcome to St. James. I'm glad that you guys are here. Welcome to everybody who's uh, <clears throat> watching online as well. A um, couple quick announcements. And of course, as always, make sure that you look at the notices on your own. There is youth confirmation right after this service today. There is no prayer meeting tonight at 5.30. We have a community group leaders meeting. And so um, don't, uh, don't be here for prayer. We're going to cancel that tonight. Uh, great divorce. Uh, everything else is on this week. Uh, the Great Divorce Bible Study is going to start on um, Wednesday. And I, I need to make this clear because I've been saying this and then not being sensitive to how confusing that might be. The Great Divorce is not about uh, marriage uh, and divorce being great. It's, about, it's, a, it's a work of fiction by C.S. Lewis. And it's about the divorce between heaven and hell. If you're going to be with us this Wednesday, read the first three chapters. They're easy read. And what it's about is fiction. It's about uh, a bus trip that citizens of hell, hell is people living in hell, it's this great uh, sort of gray and lonely and empty city. And they're allowed to take a bus trip to heaven and decide, do I want to stay in heaven or do I want to go back to hell? And it's kind of an examination of like, what's the difference between heaven and hell? And what's the difference between the mindset that longs for heaven and the mindset that longs for hell? And so, uh, the first three chapters, be with us uh, Wednesday evening. If you, aren't in, if you aren't in the email loop for, um, uh, you know, getting the Zoom invitations, please let me know. Some of you have let me know, and, and I've I, I put you in. But if you haven't talked to me, let me know that you want to be included in that, and I'll send you a link, and then we're going to do that on, uh, we'll do that on Zoom on Wednesday nights. So, um, I think that's all I have for announcements. Um, let's stand and... Uh, I'm going to open us in prayer, and then we will uh, jump into worship. Father, be with us this morning. You know that we, uh, we lack good leadership. This church lacks good leadership. Our country lacks good leadership. Our jobs lack good leadership. Our families lack good leadership. Father, would you allow, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would you allow your son Jesus to be the experienced king of our jobs and our country and our families and our workplaces in our lives, we need that benevolent dictatorship. Uh, we need the monarchy of your son, Jesus. And we know that he is. By the power of his resurrection, we confess, Father, that your son, Jesus, is Lord of the universe. Make that real and experienced even right now in all areas of our lives. And may our time with you this morning as we meet with you and you give yourself to us and all your good gifts, may it be a furthering of that. May it be a, 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 a more powerful awakening through your Holy Spirit, and awakening on our part to that reality. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's continue in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord, have mercy upon us. Christ, have mercy upon us. Lord, have mercy upon us. I confess to God Almighty, before the whole company of heaven, and to you, my brothers and sisters, that I have sinned in thought, word, and deed by my fault, by my own fault, by my own most grievous fault. Wherefore, I pray, God Almighty, to have mercy on me. Forgive me all my sins and bring me to everlasting life. Amen. The Almighty and merciful Lord. I confess to God Almighty before the whole company of heaven and to you, my brothers and sisters, that I have sinned in thought, word, and deed by my fault, by my own fault, by my own most grievous fault. Wherefore, I pray, God Almighty, to have mercy on me. 
forgive me all my sins, and bring me to everlasting life. Amen. The Almighty and merciful Lord grant you pardon, forgiveness, and remission of all your sins. Amen. Please stay standing for the first hymn. read Psalm 138 together. I give you thanks, O Lord, with my whole heart. Before the gods, I sing your praise. I bow down towards your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. 
For you have exalted above all things your name and your word. On the day I called, you answered me. My strength of soul you increased. All the kings of the earth shall give you thanks, O Lord, for they have heard the words of your mouth, and they shall sing of the ways of the Lord. For great is the glory of the Lord. For though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. You stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies, and your right hand delivers me. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, epistle reading is 1 Corinthians 14, 1-20. It actually deserves a sermon on its own. But, uh, I'm just going to give you a few sort of uh, preliminary thoughts that you can uh, use to kind of think about as we go through here. Paul's talking about speaking in tongues. Speaking in, the t- speaking in tongues in, in the New Testament is the, the gift of being able to speak in a language that is heard by other people and understood and it's not learned the way we normally learn languages. It's not learned by, you know, doing Duolingo or Rosetta Stone or by assimilating language grow up, growing up. And there's two ways that it works uh, in, that we see that work in, in, um, in, in the book of Acts and in Paul. And one is, is people who don't, um, people are hearing the gospel preached in their language from people who don't naturally know their language. If there's nobody to hear and there's nobody to understand what's being said in tongues, it provides benefit to the person who's speaking in tongues or praying in tongues. It's a gift of the Spirit. And so Paul's going to say, um, the way that tongues should work in the church is this, is that what we don't want to do, and you'll see it when we get in here, the main goal is, remember the context, 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, what builds up the body of Christ. And so what Paul's going to say is you don't want to fall into one of two ditches. And one, you don't want to say, you have to speak in tongues because speaking in tongues is a sign that you're saved. That's one ditch that's not biblical. The other ditch is to say, we shouldn't speak in tongues. It's not appropriate. It's not for now. Paul's going to say, you should speak in tongues. I wish that everybody spoke in tongues. But I wish instead that they would prophesy. Let me explain the word prophesy real quick here before we move on. Prophecy is the ability to speak God's word to other people. That could be like reading God's word and saying, this is what God wants these people to know. It could be like just because the Holy Spirit is telling you this is what God's people need to hear right now. Paul is going to say, not that prophecy is more spiritual than speaking in tongues. He's not saying one is better than the other or one is more Christ-like. What he's saying is, is that prophecy is more beneficial in the community. And so speaking in tongues, if it's not building up the community, enjoy that in private. If, however, it can be interpreted and build up the community, then do it. Otherwise, prophecy is the best way to go. All that's... That took me longer to say that than it would have just to read this. Paul says, Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself. That's good. That's appropriate. But the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now, again, let me say, Paul's not saying one's good and one's less good or one's bad and one's good. 
in the context here, 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, he's talking about what builds up the congregation. He's not talking about our private spiritual lives. He's talking about, which is important, he's talking about community life. And in that sense, people knowing what's being said is the most beneficial thing to the most people. Now, Paul says, I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues. He, he, he just means in the context of the church. Unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? Here's a couple of examples here. If even lifeless instruments, musical instruments, such as the flute or the harp, do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that's not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? You'll be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. So what he's arguing is this, is that um, the gifts of the Spirit are for benefiting each other. That's the primary goal of the gifts of the Spirit. You are free to enjoy the gift of the Spirit that God has given you. That's a valuable thing to do. It's, it's a way of knowing, like, God is working through me, and he's alive, and he's active, and he's doing something. And I'm, I, have, I have an important function here. That's valuable. But the main value of that is not so that I'll know that I'm valuable and God is using me. The main value of that is so that you guys get served with the spiritual gifts that God's given me. Verse 13, therefore one who speaks in a tongue should pray for the power to interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. It's not a false, it's, it's a false either or to say it's just one or the other. Um, where am I at here? I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. Again, Paul's going to say, I'm not saying that the gift of tongues is not to be used. Verse 18, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue if there's no interpreter. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It's always rough trying to like, you know, it's so easy in the Christian church to like divide up into false ditches and to be like, well, we don't like the excesses of this side, so let's go over here. And we don't like the excesses of that side, so let's go over all the way to this side. It's always a battle to like, just keep, guys, just keep on going back to the Bible. Keep on going back to God's word and living in that. Okay. Uh, stand with me for the gospel reading. The Holy Gospel according to St. Luke, chapter 5. Glory to you, O Lord. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on Jesus to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but... At your word, I'll let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. 
They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, Simon's doing, Peter's doing math in his head trying to figure out what this means. He fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. In so many words, that's a confession of Jesus' divinity. I mean, he uses the title Lord there. But that depart from me for I am a sinful man. That's the way people respond to interactions with God. Like Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6. Verse 10, and so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. You may be seated. I read uh, Esther 7 and 8, uh, let me just say um, thank you for being gracious uh, with the situation last week. And I, this, uh, you know, you watching me on a video screen is not the way like I want to do church here. It's not, um, if that implied at all that I think that it's important that I be the one preaching here, like I, I would hate that. I would hate for you to walk away with that notion. My preference is, is that you hear, like I, I, I totally believe in uh, what theologians call the charismatic event, that there's this time and this space with God's people where God's word is read out loud and proclaimed and the Holy Spirit does stuff. And that's super important to me. 
And I don't want ever, I, I don't, this, like watching, like I, I listen to sermon podcasts quite a bit. I need to because I don't want to hear myself preaching. That doesn't really do it for me. And um, it's, but it's not the same. It's not the same. But unfortunately, it was too late. We got the, um, the positive COVID test Saturday morning. And I just, there was, I just couldn't like ask somebody else to come in and prepare a sermon in one day. And so that was the best case scenario. And um, uh, Joe and Dave stepped up and led the service. Uh, that's not the way I want to do it. And unfortunately, that's the way it happened. But hopefully in the future, um, that sort of thing won't, won't really happen. It's not like I think it's evil. It's just not my preference. You know, it's not, it's just, uh, it's just kind of weird. It's weird for me to be talking to a camera on a computer. And I know for sure it's weird for you to like be looking at my smiling face on the wall. That's just, uh, it's not the way I prefer to do it, but. But God is good that we have the technology to do that sort of thing. Anyway, Esther 7 and 8. Um, just to kind of reset where we're at, Haman has decided to obliterate the Jews because of Mordecai, who won't bow down to him. And um, Mordecai, uh, heartbroken over this, asked Esther, his niece, who is uh, kind of, at, from time to time at least, the favorite of the women in the harem of King Xerxes, says, you got to go and you ask, you got to ask Xerxes to bail us out. And um, Esther says, I can't do that. I'm not allowed in there. Also, I don't, if people find out I'm a Jew, like I'm going to get killed because this is like against us, right? And um, she eventually does it. She goes in and she asks Xerxes if Xerxes and Haman can come to um, a banquet that she's preparing. They do. Haman is super excited because the, the banquet means that he's like He's like the favorite. He's the only one who's allowed to eat with the king and the king's favorite uh, woman. And so he goes home and he brags to his family. Remember that from last week? He says, like, all these kids I have, they're wonderful. My job, it's wonderful. But it's, no, it's, nothing, it's not worth anything to me unless I can get Mordecai out of the picture. And that brings us to the second banquet here uh, on, in chapter 7. So the king, I'm going to read through this. I'm going to make a few comments, and then I'm going to give you three points so the king and Haman went into feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, what is your wish, Queen Esther? Okay, so let me point this out, is that prior to this, she's not referred to as Queen Esther. But do you remember the first verse of our reading last week? When the rubber hit the road and um, God's people were about to be destroyed, Esther stands up, and Esther 5.1 says in Hebrew, and Esther put on her royalty. It doesn't say she put on her royal robes, although that's probably what, basically what it means. The author of Esther wants you to know that Esther put on her royalty. There's a new person in charge here. And, and from here on out, from Esther 5 on out, you're going to see that the, that the person who's leading the most powerful empire in the entire world at that time, in the entire history of the world up to that moment, is Esther. And so from here on out, she's going to be referred to as Queen Esther for the first time in the story. Right? She is in charge. We'll see this in, in, in chapter 7. Um, what is your wish, Queen Esther, it shall be granted to you, and what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. So what's your wish, what's your request? Here's her answer. Then Queen Esther, Queen Esther answered, if I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. She, she just pulled those three verbs right out of the edict that Haman had posted back in chapter uh, two or three, uh, chapter two. The, the edict which says that the, he wants the Jews to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. If we've been sold, 
merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent. For our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. All right, so she's definitely kicking up, kissing up to Xerxes. And there's a reason why she has to. She's got to play her cards right here. She's a very, very fine line she's walking. She's got to convince the king that the edict to destroy the Jews is evil. But she has to do it in a way that doesn't offend the king himself who signed that edict. Doesn't implicate him, her husband, however you want to describe that relationship, in this evil event. She's going to blame it on Haman. But Ahasuerus, or Xerxes, who you, you've been able to see from chapter 1, is kind of a bumbling buffoon. He's, I mean, he's, he's the king of the empire, but he basically gets towed around by his counselors, by Haman. Haman says, I want to kill, the, I want to kill this people. Xerxes doesn't even ask him, who is it? Like, what's the ethnic group? He just says, go ahead and do it. Esther's going to have to like, guide him and lead him. She's going to have to be in charge if she wants to get this done. She's got to get this She's got to get this law abolished, but in a way that doesn't offend Xerxes, all right? So she's definitely kissing up to him. Um, uh, verse 8, then, then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, who is he and where is he who has dared to do this? So he's, it's, it's like he's almost unaware of like the, the proclamation that he made just three months before. It's, it's just completely, he's not in charge of himself. He's completely led around by his emotions or maybe by wine. He, he happens to be drinking a lot in this in this book. Esther said, a foe and enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther. Okay, so why did Ahasuerus leave? Why did he go out into the garden? We're not really told like what's going on with him psychologically. You can kind of guess. It looks like he's super mad. And maybe he's just like, I got to go walk this thing off for a second and think about what I'm going to do. It's possible. The, but the fact, we're not told because ultimately it's not important. But so, so why does the author tell you about him leaving and going out? This is very interesting, I think. The whole book revolves around, the whole book, the foundation of the book is this story where Ahasuerus, Xerxes, the most powerful man in the history of the world up to that point, has decided that I cannot tolerate this woman showing me up I'm going to flex. I'm going to prove to everybody that I still am the most powerful. I banish her from my sight. I don't want her around. I am the king, and she must leave. And now here, at the apex of the story, the climax of the story, it's Ahasuerus that leaves, and it's Esther who's in charge. Who does Haman go to? Haman doesn't go to Ahasuerus. Haman knows who's in charge now. It's not Ahasuerus. Ahasuerus is actually working for Esther. He goes to Esther to say, will you save my life? Esther's completely in charge. And the thing that Ahasuerus dreaded, being showed up by a woman, is actually the thing that makes the story work. He gives up all of his power to this slave girl, who he merely adopted into his harem as a way to prove to everybody that he does what he wants with women because he's in charge. And now this very same woman is now the queen of the most powerful empire in the world. The king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was, well, you know what he's doing. He's pleading for his life. And the king said, will he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? And as the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Well, Ahasuerus knows he's not trying to sexually assault her. He knows that. But Ahasuerus has to figure out a way to damn this man for this horrible crime that he himself signed off on. And this is one way that he can do it. 
Like this, this guy's trying to, uh, uh, trying to rape my woman right in front of me. We know from the laws of the Persians that only the king and the eunuchs who worked in the harem, the castrati, the, those who were sexually impotent men who worked in the harem, only they were allowed to approach the, the queen's women in the harem. The, the law was any, any man besides the king and these eunuchs were, were forbidden from getting within seven paces of any of these women upon pain of death. And so that's a good law. He can pin that on Haman now. And, and Haman, of course, is he's off to be executed. They covered his face. And he's, uh, he's going to get, he's going to end this chapter being killed. Some people are troubled a little bit by, let me make a quick comment here. Some people are troubled a little bit. Why, why doesn't Esther show mercy? It seems like one commentator I read said it's, it's, it's unfortunate that like she didn't, this was an opportunity to show forgiveness and grace. He's begging for mercy and, and she doesn't give it. But look, a couple of comments here real quick. First of all, do not think about Esther as an example for the way we should live our lives. That's not her main role in the story. She's not like somebody that we should emulate. You and I can't be Esther. None of us are in the harem of the most important person in the his, in, in most important political person in the world right now. None of us are positioned like Esther was to represent an entire people of God. What Esther is doing is, like Jesus is going to do uh, 500 years later, he is going to faithfully represent God and God's people fighting against the enemies of God. Now, in the story of the Bible, what Esther is doing is this. Now, pay attention. This is a little bit tricky, but, but, but this is maybe not the most important thing I'm going to say. If you forget this, it's going to be all right. Esther is a daughter of Saul, King Saul. Go back to Esther chapter 2 and verse 5, and you'll see that Mordecai, her uncle, is a direct descendant of Kish, the father of Saul. Saul failed to get rid of God's enemies. The Amalekites were God's sworn enemies. All the way back in Exodus 17, all the way through to First, uh, to first and Second Samuel. God told Saul, you cannot let them exist. They are determined to destroy you. Th th this, is like Nazis, this is like Hitler. These are the Hitlers of, of, of that time. Saul, you have, to can't, you have to kill King Agag, the king of the Amalekites. Saul doesn't do it. For whatever reason, he decides to be merciful which he shouldn't have been, any more than the Allies should have been merciful with Hitler at the end of World War II. That's a, that's a weird kind of mercy that we're asking Esther to do here, to let, let go of the person who's determined to destroy her entire ethnic and, and, and religious uh, group. Instead, Esther, the great-great-great-great-great-great-great-granddaughter of Saul, fulfills what Saul failed to do, which is to get rid of the last Amalekite. Not because there's some sort of like vindictive violence, but because she's the representative of God's people in ways that you and I will never be. It's her job in that moment to defend God's people against this most evil of enemies, the Agagite Haman. So don't think of, this, don't think of Esther as like, well, what can I learn from her about how to, there, there are certain things that we'll get, but at the end of the day, Esther is the Christ figure in the story, and you and I are not. You and I are the, the maybe a little bit more like Mordecai, maybe, mainly like the Jews who are living throughout the kingdom who are just kind of like, what's going on? We're going to get killed and we don't know what to do. That's mainly what we're like. We need an Esther to bail us out. Okay, so moving on. Uh, so uh, verse 8, Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. So kind of, this, this whole thing's filled with irony, but here's one of the ironies. You, you, you remember that this meeting here Haman thought that this meeting was going to be the place where he got to say to, to, to uh, Ahasuerus, 
I want permission to hang Mordecai on this gallows. And Ahasuerus was going to say, yes, hang him on that. that. That sentence does get pronounced, but ironically, it's against Haman himself, not against Mordecai. Hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. A quick historical note. Uh, I don't know what to do with this devotionally. Uh, we have the word hanged here in the text. Uh, the Persians did not hang their prisoners in the way that you and I think of the word hanged. You, you, in our culture, we think of hanged as like a rope around the neck, you know, hung, hung around the neck until dead. The, the, word, the, the Persians didn't hang people like that. The Persians were much more cruel than that. The Persians invented crucifixion. Uh, the Persians invented uh, a really cruel form of capital punishment called the scaphe. I'm not going to describe it because it's uh, a little gross. Uh, go look it up. I think it has its own Wikipedia page. Uh, when it says hanged here, it actually means impaled. The Persians would, huge stakes sharpened on the end. You take the victim and you jam their bodies down till that stake goes up inside them and then you leave them hanging there on the end of that stake. Again, I don't know what to do with that devotionally except to say don't do that maybe. I don't know. But it is interesting historical fact that I threw in there. That's bonus material. Moving on to chapter eight. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, and Mordecai came before the king. For Esther had told what he was to her, and the king took off his signet. Remember, he's a big fan of Mordecai at this point, because just prior to this, he had found out that Mordecai had discovered this assassination plot against him. And so he's kind of a big fan of Mordecai right now, which he had taken from Haman and gave it to Mordecai, and Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. That's a, that's a pretty... You know, I talked last week in the sermon about reversals. That's a pretty sharp reversal in 48 hours. From the second most powerful man in the empire about to assassinate you to you owning his house 48 hours later. That's pretty sharp. Our God is a good and powerful God. Then Esther spoke again to the king, verse three. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. Just because Haman's dead doesn't mean that the decree is dead. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king, and she said, If it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who were in all the province of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that's coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? That, that's, what, that's what our hearts long for. Somebody who's powerful enough to stop the destruction, to, to, say to, the, to say to God, how can I bear to see the destruction of my people? Verse seven, then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, behold, I've given Esther the house of Haman, and they've hanged him on the gallows because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring for an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. Okay, so now we've got a problem. The problem's not going to get resolved completely until next Sunday, but the problem is this. The laws of the Persian that come from the king's hand can't be revoked. Once the king makes these laws, it's like Daniel in the lion's den, remember? The king says whoever doesn't, you know, what, 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 what the deal was, pray, you know, pray to me is going to get in the, thrown in the lion's den. And then once he finds out it's Daniel, he's like heartbroken, but he can't change it because once he's put it into law, it's actually above him. Same thing here, Ahasuerus says, the first edict, I have to let stand. I can't get rid of it. But you can do what you want to counteract it. So this is what happens. Verse 9, I'm going to read this real fast. The king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month. Oh, but by the way, verse 9 here, again, I don't have this, is, there's no payout for this, but verse 9 is the longest verse in the Bible. So 
uh, interesting tidbit. The king's scribes uh, were summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day. And an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews, to the satraps and the governors and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, to each province in its own script and to each people in its own language, and also to the Jews in their script and their language. And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent the letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate, same language, any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. On one day, throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, this corresponds to the day when the Jews were to be destroyed in Haman's decree, back in chapter 2, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, a copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province, being publicly displayed to all peoples, and the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers, mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service, rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel. So he can't, get rid of, he can't get rid of the decree that the Jews could be destroyed and plundered. So they make up another decree saying that the Jews are legally allowed to defend themselves to the point of death. They're allowed to, they're allowed to kill you if you attack them. So it could be allowing civil war. And in fact, we'll see next week. Well, I'll, I'll tell you that when we get to, the, get to that next week. But it's not giving the Jews free blanche to just to kill whoever they want. This is not an, this is not an offensive against uh, the pagans. This is defense against uh, people who would be attacking God's people. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. Okay, can, can I do this one more time? Sorry, let me, one more thing. The, 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 the reversal and the irony that's in here, let me highlight this one more time. It starts off with this decree, this bad decree against the Jews. Mordecai responds by tearing up his clothes, sitting in sackcloth and ashes, upon which he's told, you can't go into the king's gate because you're not allowed to go in there looking like that. Esther intervenes on God's people, at which point Mordecai is brought in, a new decree defending the Jews is issued, and Mordecai, Mordecai's sackcloth and ashes is replaced with royal robes, with, 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 with the garments of like, this guy's in charge, is basically what's happening. So this massive reversal kind of strung out over the several past chapters. And if you're keeping track, you can, I mean, it's, it's, it's little tiny bits too. But over the course of the story, everything, that bad is, is, everything that's bad is coming undone. God is turning all the bad into good. Uh, verse 18, the Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. More on that celebration next week. And in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews, for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. All right, three points really quick here. The royalty of Esther, what does that look like? What does it look like when God makes the right person the king or the right person the queen? What does it look like? Basically three things here. First of all, it looks like self-sacrifice. Look back at chapter 7, verses 3 and 4. Then Queen Esther answered, if she's talking to Ahasuerus, Haman's there. If I found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleased the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we've been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. Look, Esther's problem is this. This is why she didn't want to do this in the first place. Is because there's two different ways 
that this scenario could result in her being killed. Two different ways. One is, she's got to go talk to this king who owns a thousand women and has sex with whichever one he wants. And he hasn't paid any attention to her for a month. And the law says if she goes into his presence and he doesn't want her in there, she's going to get killed. It's not just, hey, you need to leave. You don't belong in here. It's you get killed. That's the law. She could get killed that way. The second way is, if she, if she goes and she does this, she has to out herself as a Jew. And that means, like, she puts herself, the dude Haman is right there who's determined to kill the Jews. And she's going to stand next to him and say, I know he has all the power in the kingdom. I know that you took your signet ring and gave it to him. I know that everybody's required to bow down to him. I know that he has the power to make laws. In fact, he's made a law which declared that I need to die. I'm going to stand here in front of him and let you know that's me. Like, I might die here. This is the first thing that real royalty does. Self-sacrifice. She, she puts herself in the line of fire. She knows, like she, like she, like she said earlier, a couple of weeks ago, if I perish, I perish. Like, I got to go for this. I have to do this. I'm going to die. I might die. If I die, I die. And that's the price that real royalty pays. This is not how, typically how leadership works. Typically leadership, and for, I'm talking about like not just our government, although that's true, but our jobs that you're at, your families that you're in, the church that you're in, the way that leadership works in this church is this way. I'll tell you how the leadership works here, is I need you guys to sacrifice so that I can get done what I want to get done. Honestly, that's what happens. It's the way your family works too. I need Angela to do certain things so that like the family will go the way I want it to go. What I'm asking is that for her to give up part of herself in order to improve me. I'm asking you guys to give up part of yourself in order to improve my life. Those are little minor things. Sometimes they're huge things. I was listening to um, a podcast about Richard III. Richard III was, uh, was the younger brother of Edward IV, king of England. Edward IV dies, but he has two sons first, a 12-year-old and a 9-year-old. Edward V is his son. Edward V is the new king, right? So, so Richard, Edward V's uncle, it's his job to be the Lord protector and to, to protect his to protect his nephew so that when his nephew comes of age in five or six years, he can be ready to take the throne, you know, full-fledged. But instead what Richard III does is Richard III decides, I'm going to be the king. And the way, it ha- the, way, the way he works it is this. Is first of all, he says, I've discovered that my brother, that, that my nephews are illegitimate because my brother's not really married to their mother. He was engaged before and that was official and that makes these kids bastards. And so they shouldn't be. And if anybody questions that, I'm pretty sure that my brother's a bastard too. He just totally threw his mom under the bus. But basically said my mom was sleeping around and my brother's not really my brother. And and, in case anybody else would have any questions, he murdered his two nephews because he wanted to be the king of England. It's a very, very drastic example, but typically this is the way that power and leadership works in our world, whether it's Richard III or whether it's me. I expect people to die, maybe not literally, but at least part of them to die. Maybe it's just Angela's plans for the evening. I need those to die so I'll be happy. Maybe it's, your, maybe it's what the Holy Spirit's put on your heart about the way that St. James Lutheran Church should be and look. But I'm going to need that to die so what I want to happen happens. That's the way leadership works. And what we crave is, what we crave is a righteous leader. We crave somebody who has infinite, we crave there to be a queen who rules over the biggest empire in the world, but is willing to sacrifice herself for me instead. 
And when you find a leader like that, who's all-powerful, who's omnipotent, omniscient, and is willing to sacrifice themselves instead of asking us to sacrifice ourselves for him or her, you found something golden. This is why I said earlier, Esther is not me or you. Esther is Jesus. Esther, Esther's not perfect, of course, right? You know, Esther's gonna die for one. Esther, this is the story's very sort of shallow. We don't know too much about Esther's life after all this happens, but I'm assuming that being a normal human being, that she was kind of a screw-up at times and wanted to serve herself at times. But Esther is pointing us towards the future king who's going to come and rule over all things, and that king is Jesus. He's going to give him, the way he does leadership is he gives up all of himself to benefit us. He doesn't ask you to give up anything of yourself for him. He gives all of himself to me and you. That's true leadership. True royalty is self-sacrifice. Second thing, true royalty is shared. True, roya- true royalty is shared power. There's a book that came out. So that, again, just to reiterate, power in our world is about aggregating authority. I need you to make decisions that benefit me. And if any one of you in here wants to be a Mordecai and refuse to bow down to King Aaron, I'm gonna try and squash you. That's the way power works in our churches, in our homes, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, in our government. It's the way that the worldly power works. But the way that godly, real, Jesus royalty works is that power is given to others. That power is given to others. There was a book written in uh, 2004 by Harry Chambers. He's like an ergonomist or whatever. And he studied uh, um, micromanagers. And he said, based upon his studies, that 79% of us know what it's like to be micromanaged. To know what it's like to have a boss or a husband or a wife or a church leader who wants to have their fingers in everything that you do. And it's an interesting number, 79%, because everybody's like, yeah, I've been there. But it's not possible that 79% of us in this room have been micromanaged, but 0% of us have micromanaged. We know, we know that some of us are guilty of micromanaging. And probably anybody who's like in charge wants to micromanage from time to time. But we also know if you've been the micromanager or if you've been micromanaged, you know how horrible it is to work in that situation. It's not just that it's not fun, it's actually stifling to the work itself. It inhibits creativity. If you don't have any way of like with your own gifts and in your own position in the company or whatever to like decide, I think that we should do this. Good things aren't gonna happen. The weaknesses of the boss get imprinted on the whole workplace. That, that hovering, that, that inability to make any sort of decision without somebody looking over your shoulder is also stifling. Lack of autonomy. Uh, all, of this is stif- all of this is stifling. You know, a lot of us have a problem with Christianity. Christians have a problem with Christianity sometimes. Unbelievers have a problem with Christianity because we imagine that it's like micromanaging on steroids. Like out here in my world, I get to kind of call my own shots. If I become a Christian, like God's gonna be like, every single little thing you do, I'm gonna be there and you gotta do it my way. Now, I wanna say that God is sovereign and his, his will and his law are holy and righteous. And so there's a certain sense in which God wants to be sovereignly Lord of every single part of your life. That's definitely true. But the way it actually works out in Scripture is that the way he does that is by giving you that power and that authority. God gives you the power and authority of the kingdom. He makes you kings and priests in his kingdom. Look in uh, um, chapter 8. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, And Mordecai came before the king 
For Esther had told what he was to her. So what Jesus does is he takes you and he brings you before the father, not a bad father like King Ahasuerus, but, but our good holy father and loving father in heaven. And he says, let me tell you what this person is to me. Let me tell you who this, this is my brother. This is my sister. They belong to me. And, and now that I'm the king, now that I'm reigning father in your name over the universe, I want them to have a part of this with me. Give them the royal robes. Give them the signet ring. Give them the horse to go through the kingdom. I want them to have the property. Put them in charge. That's what Jesus does. He puts you in charge of the world. Do you know who runs the world? It's you. Now, I know you don't think that you do. I'm going to show you why in just a minute, why you really do. But before I get there, let me give you two proof texts from Scripture. You and I are called to be rulers of this world. Romans chapter 5, Paul says this. He's comparing Adam's reign, by which we all died, to Christ's reign, where we all have been brought to life. He says this. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, Adam, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. As death reigned through Adam, so what reigns through Christ? You would imagine him to say life. He doesn't say that. He says, you who believe in Jesus, through Jesus, will reign in life. See what Paul says? Because of Jesus, now you guys are the kings and queens of the universe. One more example. Revelation chapter 5. There's scrolls that can't be unrolled in Revelation chapter 5. It's all part of a vision, okay? It's not literal. It's, a, it's an apocalyptic vision. These scrolls are rolled up. And the scrolls are the solution to all the problems in the universe. And there's nobody to unroll them. There's nobody, to unseal, there's nobody powerful enough or worthy enough to unseal these scrolls and unroll them so that everything can be fixed. And John breaks down crying because he's like, there's no hope. The scrolls are gonna stay sealed. And an angel comes and taps John on the shoulder and says, don't cry because the Lion of Judah is here and he can unroll and unseal the scrolls. And so John looks around for the Lion of Judah and he finds him. But you know what he sees when he finds the Lion of Judah? He sees a lamb as if he had been slain from the foundations of the world. And the lamb is powerful enough to unroll the scrolls, to solve all the problems. The lamb is the king of the universe. But what happens? What's the payout? As soon as the lamb unrolls the scroll and the plan of salvation is put into action, and Jesus, the lion of Judah, the lamb that was slain, is now Lord and king of the universe, what happens? The 24 elders gather around and say this to the lamb, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Why did Jesus die? There's a lot of different answers to this. Way, 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 way down the list is Jesus died so you could go to heaven. Way, way, way up on the list in the story of the Bible is Jesus died so that you guys could be in charge of the world. Jesus died so that you could rule and reign over everything. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're like, I'm not in charge of anything. Christians aren't in charge of anything. We're completely irrelevant. We don't have political power. Nobody listens to us. Everybody makes fun of us. Like, I've only got four followers on Twitter. Like, we're not in charge of anything. And let me say this. If you, think the, if you think about power in terms of the world, like power is people doing what I tell them to do, or me having lots of money or lots of political cachet, then yes, you're going to be very, very much deluded when Paul says that God has chosen us to rule and reign over creation. 
But if you think about power in terms of the kingdom, if you think about power in terms of Esther's power, the power to give up your own life to rescue people, then you will see, now now sometimes it works out that, that Christians have the political power. William Wilberforce, the prime minister of Britain, who because of his commitment to Jesus Christ abolished the slave trade. That's one example. But more often than not, Esther's one example, right? Joseph and Daniel are examples. But more often than not, we're more like Jesus. Jesus rules and reigns over the entire creation from a cross. It's his death that is his victory. That's when he's his most powerful. That's the apex of his authority, of his kingdom power, is his death on the cross and his resurrection. We're more often like Bonhoeffer than we are like Wilberforce, where our power, the power to influence, the power to rule and reign, which is what influence is, is gospel power that works out through our own deaths, our own sufferings, our own weaknesses, our own self-sacrifices, because it's matched up with Jesus's. I'll give you one example real quick. So a lot of you know, I ran away from Jesus real hard for like four years. And the reason that I came back, there's one main reason that I came back, and it's Angela. And you know how Angela got me back? Angela never, one, never at one point, Angela put her finger in my chest and said, that's it, you're done screwing around, you're coming to church this Sunday. Never one time did she do that. Never one time did she try to manipulate. Did she say, well, if you'll do this, I'll do this over here. Never one time did she try to do that. Instead, she faithfully loved me and carried on her own shoulders the pain that I was causing and willingly carried that for me. Never at any point when I repented said, okay, well, now you've got to pay. You caused me four years of suffering. Now I need you to see. Instead, she willingly carried that on her own shoulders. That's the only reason that I'm standing. It's probably the only reason why I'm alive. It's definitely the only reason I'm a Christian. Probably the only reason I'm standing right here today is because Angela's the boss of me. Like in all the best, I did what she wanted me to do. And she never one time bowed up. She never one time raised her voice. She gave up her life for me. She Jesused it for me. She was Christ in my life. That's the most powerful thing that you have. We don't need political power. We don't need more money. We don't need better programs. We need to give up ourselves for other people. And when that happens, we will find that we're the kings and queens of the universe. Everybody does what we want them to do because we're in charge. It doesn't mean like all the benefits of being in charge. You're not going to maybe get the big mansion in this world or the political or whatever. I've already said this. Self-sacrifice, that's the most powerful thing that we can do. Which brings me to my third point. This will be real fast. Conversions. It results in conversions. This is the power that they have. Verse 17, in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And, check this out, many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. Mass conversions. They converted because of fear of the Jews. Now, fear of what? Fear that the Jews were going to kill them? No, because the Jews didn't have the right to just kill whoever they wanted to. You could only be killed if you fought against them. So it wasn't fear of bodily harm. It's an easy way to avoid that. Just leave the Jews alone. What was it fear of? Well, in the story, what does it look like? Here's this oppressed people who for three months we've been planning on, oh, they're done. They're weak. Give us uh, nine more months and we've got their property. It belongs to us. The Jews in our neighborhood, we'll get rid of them. We'll split their, we'll split their these people have nobody defending them. So within, the, within the space of 48 hours, finding out that the most powerful person in the kingdom, the person that King Ahasuerus works for, like Aaron works for Angela, is a Jew, Queen Esther. And she has promoted as her prime minister a Jew, her uncle Mordecai. What weird 
unseen but irresistible force can create that kind of um, reversal. That's scary in all the best ways. So what do people do? They do the smart thing. Whatever they've got, that's what I'm on. That's what people are going to do. When, when you sacrifice your life, look, look, when you go to work and there are people, there are clients at your job and there are coworkers who don't like you and when you love and when you serve them and you don't expect anything in return, they don't even know what to do with that. It's like a, that's like an alien living in their midst. You know what's going to happen? The fear of God is going to fall on them. There's an unseen but irresistible force that they can't explain. It doesn't work in their, econo- in, in their economics. When you give up yourself for other people, when you self-sacrificially love other people, you will end up persuading them to follow Jesus. It's not, per- it's not like a w- one-to-one thing. The people here, the Jews, why, why, do the, why do the people convert to becoming Jews? Is it because like there's this Mordecai turns into the Jewish C.S. Lewis or Francis Schaeffer and is writing these great intellectual arguments? No. Is there like this powerful worship experience and they all come and they're like so moved? No. The intellectual arguments, the emotional worship experience, all those things are important. But what happens is, is they experience the fear of God because they see a people who are truly in charge because the people who are truly in charge the power of God, of self-sacrifice, the power of the gospel is working through them. And when the Christian church does this, when we do this, Glenn Carbon's gonna be transformed. People are gonna be irresistibly drawn to this irresistible power. This is true royalty, self-sacrifice. Shared royalty, mutual royalty, the royalty of Jesus Christ. It doesn't make us all Jesus Christ. The royalty of Jesus Christ working out through each one of us. Powerful conversions because we love and we serve our neighbors. That's what Esther 7 and 8 is about. Okay, stand with me. I'm going to pray for us, then let's come forward and have communion together. Let's pray. God, we thank you for loving us and for being a good God, and and you've, for, for thousands of years now, Father, you've sovereignly delivered your people. You've raised up royalty, sometimes merely human royalty, which has done your job and has pictured for us the royalty that we've all been waiting for, the benevolent dictatorship, the beautiful monarchy the kingdom of God in your son, Jesus Christ. Father, help us to be not just loving, willing recipients of that kingdom, but Father, give us the grace of sharing that kingdom, kingdom power, of believing, of truly believing, whatever our circumstances, Lord, that you're allowing us to rule and reign over Glen Carbon, that you're allowing us to rule and reign over Edwardsville or whatever town that we're in. Lord, in your mercy. Father, I pray that you would be with all of us this morning who are hurting and struggling Uh, There are some amongst us here who have really intense physical pain right now, who are worried about some sort of chronic disease that's afflicting them. Some of us who are uh, broken in our bodies, struggling with uh, uh, back pain and uh, broken ankle and all different kinds of uh, bad physical ailments. A lot of us in here are struggling with broken relationships, our relationships that are fraying and we feel them slipping away from us and we don't really know what to do. Relationships with our kids, our significant others, friends that we feel kind of trapped in and wanting to get fixed but not knowing how to do it. A lot of people in here mourning this morning, Father. I just pray especially that you would be this week with uh, J.D. Rambarger, whose grandfather passed away, and also with Monica Harding, whose mom passed away this past week, that you would give them comfort and hope. A lot of us struggling, Father, with mental and psychological stress, um, anxiety, depression, confusion, hopelessness, 
Father, you know how desperately we need your kingdom. You know how desperately we need you to come and touch us, to make us whole. We firmly believe and confess, those of us who know and love you, we firmly believe and confess that you, are, you have destined us for wholeness, for healing. Would you, Father, by your grace, by the power of your Holy Spirit, for the sake of your Son and your kingdom, would you give us a taste of that even now? Would you give us physical healing now, hope now, relational uh, fix now? Do this for your own name's sake, Father, but also for our good, Lord, in your mercy. We can only pray these things, Father, because you've lovingly invited us to come into your presence, and we confess. We know that it's not because we're special or because we're holy or because we're righteous. We know that we can only come in under the auspices of the precious blood of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. If you can, confess your faith with me, with the words of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Now let's pray together in Jesus' name, the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Our Lord Jesus Christ, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for you for the forgiveness of all your sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The peace of the Lord be with you always. Amen. You may be seated. Try thy sin. 
Please stand. Now may this true body and blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ strengthen you and preserve you and keep you in the one true faith to life everlasting. Depart in Christ's peace. Amen. Lord, now let your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all people to be a light to lighten the Gentiles and to be the glory of your people Israel. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen.
Lord bless you and keep you. Lord, make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. Lord, lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Amen. Make sure that you find somebody you haven't talked to recently. Work on that relationship. Go in peace.